Hey, pals, Patio here. So, the other day, the Rage Kitty and I were hanging out, working on this episode, and we started to talk about racism. I know, I know, I know. It sounds like a random thing to end up on, especially since I started that conversation by talking about how I could carry her around in a baby Bjorn on my chest because she's such a tiny, miniature baby version of a human being. But, anyways... Said Demons High School Football Rules. You have got to stop peppering me with Bill and Ted quotes, man. I will not. Great. <laughs> it is It is a piece of art that has shaped a generation. And I don't know, I just figure it makes you feel at home since you grew up in the city where the movie takes place, San Dimas, California. BT Debs, that's, that's really where you're from, right? Why are you making a face at me? Oh, well, just because it reminded me of... Uh, I'm just going to bring this up. Like, that question is normally super loaded for me. What are you talking about? It's just a question of, like, if San Dimas is your hometown or not. Yeah. Why, and, how is it loaded? Well, and because it's you, I get what you're asking me. Okay. See, now this is most, when, like, you usually drop a big old hammer, and I feel like no, I'm just going to prepare myself. The, <laughs> it's just that most of the time when people ask me that, it's uh-huh. got, like, a less kind undertone. What? Um, usually the person asking me is a stranger. And usually they're implying that I can't be American. Oh, my God. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Well, I am not a stranger. I am your friend. Well. I'm asking <laughs> I'm asking because I want to know more about you. Um, but I want to let's, – let's go into this. What do you mean? So – Like what happens in these situations? People will often say like, oh, where are you from? And when I say L.A., they're like – no, where are you really from? Oh, that is really messed up. Well, and to make things weirder, most of the time there are these follow-up questions to that that are meant to test my knowledge of Japanese culture. But it's not because the questioner is interested in my answers. It's usually because there's this other undercurrent to this whole exchange where they like want me to prove my Americanness. But at the same time, they want me to live up to their idea of Japanese-ness, which I never do, by the way. (laughs) Oh, my God. So then there's this other thing where they try and shame me for not being more Japanese. Jesus. Yeah, it's a really, really strange no-win situation. Well, so what do you do then? What, like, how do you respond? It depends on how I'm feeling that day. (laughs) I bet. So a lot of times I'll just quickly explain that my great-grandparents emigrated from Japan and because I've been here, uh, well, we've been here for four generations, I'm very American, and then I move on. Other times I just say I'm Japanese and leave it at that because I don't have the energy to answer. I'm like, okay, I know what you're getting. I'm just going to cut to the chase and give you the answer that you're fishing for. Well, so why do you think, what's behind that question then? Like, is it ignorance? Uh, is it straight up racism? Is there a is there a difference? That's a tricky one. And if you do research, it actually really depends on the person um, who's being asked. Different people take it different ways. A lot of people like me take it as almost it's like a microaggression. Uh-huh. And I understand that sometimes people are completely ignorant or naive and they don't mean it maliciously and then i try and respond to them a little more kindly Mm -hmm. the problem with that whether it's meant maliciously or not is that 
it can, it's like a continual reminder that I'm seen as different. Right. And it's this process of othering me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And I, I get that people can be genuinely curious, but there are other ways and times to approach that subject, not like as an opening line with someone. Right. That just reduces someone's identity to that. Mm-hmm. And it sets up this dynamic where like the questioner is basically saying like i there's this idea of what american is and who is american Mm -hmm. and you don't fit into that but okay since we've already kind of gone in this left turn direction from where we started with bill and ted um (laughs) thank you bill and Ted. so let's just go with it let's go with it going back to what i said earlier about people who try and make me feel bad for not being more Japanese. Right. It's really ironic because one of the reasons that I'm not more in touch with my Japanese side, like I'm very, very American, right. isn't just because I love this country, but it's also the result of super racist American policies and institutions that I'm like the product of. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the internment camps, right? Yeah. So my dad's parents and grandparents and my mom's parents and grandparents – They were all interned with all of their family members during World War II. And then when they got out, they were discouraged from the government from appearing too Japanese. So there was this whole system of structural racism designed to force them Mm. to keep a distance from that part of their heritage. Like my grandparents, who were both highly, well, actually my grandpa got kicked out of college because of the internment. But they couldn't really get decent jobs because of being Japanese. They had to buy property in a less desirable part of Los Angeles. And then my grandparents, they were under a lot of pressure to raise culturally American children so that their kids would be accepted. Oh, and yeah, so, sure. Yeah, so that's how my parents were raised. And then that's how my parents raised me. And... Again, none of this is something that you can explain to someone who just wants you to fit their idea of a Japanese person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Their only aim is to be is to subtly hint that you're different without actually explicitly saying you're different. Oh my God. Elizabeth, I I'm so sorry that you have to deal with this BS. That yeah, you just, should be. No, I'm kidding. It's so, it's so brutal. <laughs> Diversity, inclusion, they're a part of a big discussion that's been happening in the outdoor industry for the past couple of years. Because historically, people who participate in outdoor recreation are white and tend to be more affluent. According to a 2017 Outdoor Industry Association report, 73% of outdoor participants are white. In 2015, the National Park Service estimated that nearly 80% of the visitors were white. In the 2014 U.S. Census, people who identified as non-Hispanic white made up about 62% of the population. Now, the numbers and terminology can get a little confusing here because the organizations that do outdoor participation surveys don't use the same categories for race that our census counts. But most experts acknowledge that, proportionally to the population, Whites and people of color don't participate at levels reflective of their census numbers. 
And so there have been some efforts by various groups to diversify the outdoors. In 2013, for example, the National Park Service created the Office of Relevancy, Diversity, and Inclusion. And in the private sector, there are multiple grassroots efforts to increase outdoor participation amongst underrepresented groups. When you hear the word diversity, the first thing that comes to mind might be color. Maybe it's gender, maybe it's sexual orientation, maybe it's facial hair. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably not facial hair. (laughs) Maybe not, but diversity is a pretty broad topic. And so we wanted to talk to someone who has their shoulder up against the sandbags on this issue. Enter Karima Bats, one of the funniest people I have ever met, and a lady with a story for every breath that she takes. She started the Adaptive Climbing Group and now oversees the Adaptive Climbing Program for Brooklyn Boulders. We spoke to Karima at her climbing gym, and she has a belief about inclusion and diversity that is pretty damn eye-opening. I believe diversity is more than color. Got a furrowed brow and open ears? You should. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. The thing is, is that you know, once you become disabled, you are, it's like being uh, baptized into um, a different race or culture of people. And so you may have identified as like a 20 something black woman, right? Or a, a, a black girl who wears her hair natural or a girl with green eyes and freckles. But now I'm a disabled person and that's how the entire society now views me as. They don't see me as a black woman. They don't see me as a plus size woman. They don't, they don't see me as a girl from Brooklyn. They just see the disabled person first, right? They see the disability first. And, and, and that's something that they can't help. So I feel like I've become a disability advocate not on purpose. Um, it, was, it was for purpose, not on purpose. So what do I mean by that? Um, I, I'm an amputee. That's that's what it is. Been like that for seven years. Woohoo, lucky seven. <laughs> I am seriously going to play that number like all year. In 2009, when she was 28 years old, Karima was diagnosed with a really rare form of cancer, synovial sarcoma. I was stage four as soon, as soon as I was diagnosed. And it has like about a 70% mortality rate, you know, because if you're going to get cancer, you got to get like the really cool, you know, unique one if you're a New Yorker, because um, you got to stand out. Right. <laughs> of course. So you were like, I'm not going to get some lame cancer. I'm going to get the cool. So I was just like, get the good one. Everybody's got that cancer. I want the different cancer. <laughs> I'm going to get the other one. What you got? What you got, God? (laughs) As part of her treatment, the doctors gave Karima two options, a handful of surgeries to extract the cancer or an amputation of her left leg just below the knee. Due to the volatility and size of the tumor, Karima chose the amputation. But one of the things that, you know, was definitely different about me is that I had a party for my for my left foot uh, before they cut it off. Um, Because that's kind of how I deal with things. 
I had it at this West Indian restaurant in Coney Island called Footprints that my friend managed. It was like very foot themed. Wait, the, wait, <laughs> the, the name of the restaurant is what? Footprints. Karima's cancer went into remission, but despite her attempts to laugh through the pain, she struggled to adjust. Um, there is a survivor's guilt that comes with being a cancer survivor. You know, you, first you've already accepted the fact that you're totally going to die here, right? There's a huge high chance you're going to die. But then you don't. And then a lot of people that you've met during your cancer journey have died and you survived. Then you're also hit with the fact that you are now permanently disabled. And you have to learn how to do everything all over again. It's not easy. It's not fun. Your family and friends are treating you differently. What is, what is intimate relationships going to be like, right? You know, you're going through a self-identification change, too, as a self-identifier. So I went through a very big stage of depression. There was a lot of drinking involved, too, as well, uh -huh. which you're talking about stages of grief because you've literally lost a part of yourself that changes or at least how you feel that maybe a lot of people go through a feeling of like, not everybody, but a lot of people go through this changing of like, who am I, right? What am I? What do I do now? Karima was born and raised in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, home of Jay-Z, hipsters, and paper-thin pizza. When you think of Brooklyn, you think of urban culture, not adventuring outside. But Karima grew up loving the outdoors. My uncle was originally from South Carolina who raised me, and he was an avid fisher. We had a trailer that went out on Memorial Weekend, and we went camping, we went fishing, we went hiking. I was a scout. But after her amputation... Karima completely stopped doing things outdoors. In fact, she had almost zero motivation to do any real physical activity, except for a little exercise in her traditional gym. Once, her boyfriend dragged her out of the house to a climbing gym. She watched him climb and didn't participate. But then, one day... I was visiting my friend who was going through her second round of cancer, um, and she looked good, though. You, you know how you can tell when someone's kind of glowing from the inside like a pregnant person? You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, yo, what's up? Will you? She's like, oh, I came from this kayaking trip with this organization called First Descents. And, oh, they'll take you even when you're sick or disabled. You know, it was good for her to get away from everybody and everything and just not feel the weight of the world that comes with either cancer treatment or disability or, or the dedication to your family and friends to put on the the I'm all right face, you know? And so I was just like, maybe I need something like that. I need to get out of here. And so I decided to sign up for this scholarship because they were giving free scholarship for first time participants who were in cancer treatment or, or recently survived. There was a list of sports. I chose rock climbing because I've never done it before. Choosing that was, was more of a Choosing something so I wouldn't be more depressed because I've kayaked before, right? And if kayaking didn't feel the same as when I had two legs, then I was going to be depressed. If, if body surfing wasn't the same as when I had two legs, I was going to feel depressed, right? Because I couldn't moonwalk anymore. That was depressing. And so like, so, like, you know. So I'll try something new that I've never tried before. So, like, you know, if I fail, it's because it's new. If I fail, I'm expecting myself to fail. Yeah, well, and it's, yeah, exactly. And it's new. I'm failing because I've never tried this before. Not because, you know, I've just, I've just had my leg amputated and I'm a cancer survivor. And then you play that tape out and the, the cycle of shame and remorse and regret and anger all starts again. That's yes. actually, that's super smart. 
<laughs> on your part. <laughs> that was really smart. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know what? Sometimes I think I might have just a slight bit of intelligence. <laughs> and so what stood out on your first time? Everybody was incredibly patient. Like, I, I took a long time, but I got at the same crag as everyone else. And that was another thing. Are we changing routes? Did anybody chip off pieces of the mountain for me? Absolutely not. We waited. We figured out ways of figured out how my body moves and then figured out ways to make that work and, and, and send that route. Was it like the opportunity to like embrace struggle that really was rewarding? The, the, it's, it's about the control of, it's about also the control of the environment. It's not about the struggle per self. There is struggle, but there's also triumph. Knowing that I did that by myself. Look, without obstacles, you can't tell what the success and the failures are. There has to be an obstacle, right? If someone's constantly doing something for me, where's my triumph? Where, where do I understand where failure is and where triumph is? Where's my bar? I don't have one. We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor. Back at home, Karima's newfound love surprised some folks. It was the one that made my family think that I had lost something or was going through some cancer recovery crisis. You know, like, oh, she's rock climbing now. You know, she has one leg. You know, like, she just, well, she just had cancer. She almost died like three times. So let her, like, get it out of her system. Sure, she'll be back. <laughs> let her just get. Let her just work out this weird climbing phase. Exactly. But it wasn't a phase. Karima was hooked. When she came back from her first climbing trip, she applied for a job at Eastern Mountain Sports. And why does anybody work at a gear store? Because it's so high paying. Psych. For the perks, baby. Gear discounts are great, sure. But the real reason? The hookup at climbing gyms, and Karima wanted in. I wanted to work in the climbing department. You know, I learned everything. I went to all these classes and workshops, and I wanted to work in the climbing department. But they were always putting me in clothing or something else, nothing directly with outdoor equipment. And I, I guess they just assumed that I didn't have the knowledge base, right? Then another time they said, well, the crash pads, we put them up here, and you'd have to, like, climb this ladder, so we don't want it to be an issue for you. Like... You know, so they discriminated in that way. Um, And it wasn't until one day somebody called out on like a crazy busy holiday. And I just ran down to the the department and helped out, you know. And so I was I was put in a situation where I invited myself like they didn't go, oh, we need you in this department. I was just like, I'm jumping in here. And I had to like show and prove myself. And I feel like that definitely is a lot of that journey of like kind of showing and proving because you know people have preconceived notions of different cultures races sexes and 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 I could sit here and complain all day about it but maybe they just haven't seen it yet so I got to show them working through situations like this at EMS was difficult for Karima but since she was a broke girl from Flatbush and loved the climbing gym perks she kept that job for 3 years In the fall of 2013, Karima quit EMS, took a few part-time gigs, and started studying rec therapy at City College. She wanted to help other disabled people discover rock climbing and feel included. 
That same year, with the help of the Brooklyn Boulders Foundation, Karima created the Adaptive Climbing Group. It's an organization that provides climbing opportunities to people with disabilities. And in 2016, she became the Adaptive Program Manager for Brooklyn Boulders. As part of her job, Karima organizes adaptive climbing clinics at gyms all over the country. But she's come up against resistance, and that resistance isn't something that has been quick to change. When I first was going to start this, I had a lot of male naysayers that were saying it wasn't going to work the way I was doing it, like it was going to happen or, you know what I mean? And then, um, and then even when I would make suggestions on stuff or say something about equipment or, or style of climbing, you know, it was almost like it was very dismissive as if, oh, so since I'm not some 5'11", trad lead climber I have no idea what I'm talking about or let's say I already do service a facility and I'm here trucking this equipment back and forth let's say from one city to a suburban area in the state and um, at that time I'll say you know it'd be really since you know this is growing in popularity it's really hard for my team to like you know every month drive you know an hour or two bringing this equipment it'd be great if you had this equipment already here you know your staff is already starting to volunteer and get involved why don't you guys get yourselves a wheelchair user harness and they'll say well we don't um, get you know wheelchair users uh, you know when you're not here so you know we don't want to buy it and I'm like, maybe you would have wheelchair users if you actually had the harness. <laughs> Perhaps there's some correlation there. Right. You know, like if you if you create the options, people show up. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> All the lessons that we can learn from Field of Dreams. Plus Waterworld. That's another Kevin Costner flick that applies to Karima. What? Well... So Kevin Costner plays this nameless hero character that, as it turns out, is more diverse than one might think. How? He's part fish. O'Connell, make your point and move on. (laughs) Oh, come on. Well, people weren't super accepting to old fishy Costner Rage Kitty. So he's obviously the hero, right? He's obviously doing the right thing. I think Karima is similar. Because as Karima got more involved in the outdoor industry, she began to identify areas where it felt like it wasn't always a world that was very accepting and welcoming to her. You know, I've seen people go on climbing trips and not invite me and literally stay in the house I paid for. (laughs) That's happened to me. Like, oh, can we stay in your house um, during this comment? Sure, totally. Then they'll go out to Moab and not think that I want to go. You know, oh, I didn't I didn't know you wanted to go I didn't think, you know, they just assume that the fat girl doesn't want to go. What I also notice is that, you know, plus size clothing in the outdoors and working out. I needed some real compression clothing to hold on my jiggly bits. Right. So way more than the, the size two person needs to hold their jiggly bits, which is not that much of a jiggle. Right. And so I'm like, you know, the, the search for plus size clothing that made me feel good. Um, while I'm doing, you know, activities as well as being in my size, you know, and, and also fashionable. You want to look good, too, while you have to, you know, wear a muumuu to go out, right? You know, so. <laughs> but Karima wasn't really confronted by the homogeneity of the outdoor community until she went to an industry trade show. It was the 2017 Summer Outdoor Retailer in Salt Lake City. The show itself is an altar of commerce held at the Salt Palace Convention Center. 
Every inch is taken up by an outdoor brand. Booths are packed with outdoor gear and outdoor folks, and the aisles are human rivers. Basically, the trade show is 515,000 jam-packed square feet of white people in plaid shirts. And it's very easy to get lost in that sea of people. It's hard, culturally. (laughs) There were other disabled people at Outdoor Retailer, friends of mine even, right? I was like, oh, cool, blind guy, all right, dude in a wheelchair, cool, I'm feeling all right. But then I noticed I was black, not because I was the only black person in the room. I'm used to that in the climbing gym. Most of the time, I don't even notice I'm the only black person in the room. I always notice I'm the only one-legged person in the room. But it was literally the interactions with people that reminded me that I was black. Like what kind of interactions? Like what happened? So this one story. So let's just say there was a coffee stand that was sponsored by a brand. And I guess they brought some baristas in, a couple of male baristas in. So I go in. I'm like, yes, coffee going. A couple of guys are before me, Caucasian males before me. Regular conversation ensues. Hello, yeah, I'd like my coffee black. Nope, no sugar, please. Thank you. Okay, have a nice day. Oh, would you like caramel sauce in your latte? Okay, great, that's it. I walk up, I hear, hey, girl. And then he tries to give me some sort of like 70s black exploitation, jive turkey, symbol of greeting. And I just like stare blankly because I just totally was not ready for this. And so all the wheels are turning in my head in how do you react? You know, like, (laughs) what, what, first you're like, what's happening? So you're processing that, right? (laughs) Like, like, is this intentional? (laughs) Or does he just not know better? You know, like, which one is it? And, and probably also, I, I wish I had had a cup of coffee before I stood in line for this cup of coffee. Yeah, I wanted the cup of coffee first before I was hit with the, uh, you know, you know, unusual racism. So, <laughs> you know, that, that was like, it was, to be honest, it was the first time I felt black in sep- like six years. Before that moment, Karima says she thought of herself as chick with one leg, not black girl who climbs. At this trade show, she was surrounded by a bunch of friends who also have disabilities, so she felt like she belonged. Then... This happened, making her keenly aware that people were looking at her for her color. And the I'm a stranger in a strange land feeling didn't stop with the black exploitation barista. When everybody was talking about diversity and inclusion, they never talked about people with disabilities or all the other people that felt unincluded. But I did have to invite myself to a number of, of other diversity things that were happening and i'm not saying again something else that's unintentional so i'm sure they have a list of people who lead like you know native native lands groups right so that's another race or culture of people they have something for black girls and black guys and like latinos right so everybody's looking at those lists right they're looking at cultural references as a sense of diversity what do i represent Adaptive Climbing Group, a rock climbing program for people with disabilities. Not identified as a race, right? But we still get a checkbox, though. We get a checkbox. Census says it. We get a checkbox. But it's not put in that same cup. So there were things that I actually 
was not invited to. They know I exist. It's not like they never met me, but they didn't realize they were even leaving me out because I wasn't on that list of, of those cultural groups. Um, and, you know, diversity is more than color. And I think that um, people in general will say, you know, oh, when they think about diversity, especially when we talk about it in America, we're always thinking about races. Um, but the literal meaning of diversity is the state of being diverse variety. That's what it is. That's the literal meaning. And nowhere does it say color. I'm looking at, this is Google. State of being diverse. Variety. And the Google does not lie. No. I mean, yeah, it could. It could, but let's, I'm looking at all the translations here. These are the literal meanings. And nowhere does it say color. I'm looking at Merriam-Webster. Same thing. It just says the state or fact of being diverse. Difference. Unlikeness. Diversity of opinion, diversity of everything. So I think that when we talk about diversity, or every time I hear diversity inclusion, it never references anything else but the color of skin. Because that is one of the biggest talking points in America, I would I would presume, is why people tend to lean towards that. But I but I, I want to remind people that diversity is more than color, that it's more than it's everything. It's literally everything. So I've got I've got something for you here. Um, you know, there aren't bouncers behind velvet ropes at trailheads or at the gates of national parks, right? Definitely there, not. There aren't signs at put-ins on rivers or chairlifts at ski resorts that say whites only nope. or straight white men only. Uh-huh. But there's no sign that says blacks are welcome either. They're not exposed to it at all. And that also goes back to like... So even though segregation as a law doesn't exist, it still exists among communities. Sometimes it's self-segregation. Sometimes it's inherited segregation. So this is what happened here. If you combine the socioeconomic, the natural segregation with the systematic segregation, years of culture and information passed down to somebody that says, climbing's not for you. This place is not for you. Nobody physically, naturally said it. But maybe years ago, there was a sign up. And so that sign still exists mentally, right? Just like how a Caucasian male, you know, going up Everest and you don't see any black people or they're doing Kilimanjaro and we all know the guides are usually African or of brown descent, but they're never in the movie. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, like, then you're going to think, oh, that, that's not for me. That's that, that's that white guy thing, right? So the same thing happens with us and within the disabled community. And I think this is the key to saving what we love of the outdoors against those who wish to take it away. You know, making sure that we are identifying these various forms of diversity, making sure all of these, uh, these uh, folks in the rainbow, you know, feel like they, they belong in the industry and belong in the outdoors and making sure that we're looking for ways to bridge them to the outdoors if they haven't yet experienced it. And then you also have to help people appreciate what we already, you and I already appreciate and love um, because maybe they just don't even know it even exists or even know that there is a risk of losing it, you know, because they're not as involved in the outdoor industry. They just occasionally go to the park, right? So they don't know that there is, an issue that we're facing. 
So, Karima has been approaching brands and organizations to push them towards greater inclusivity. I see them trying to be inclusive and trying to figure out what that means. And um, as long as they keep taking feedback, and I've seen the changes being made just in the three outdoor retailer events that I've been to, I just want to make sure we're not a trend. I'm, I'm an intense person. Like, I get it, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm an angry black girl. I'm totally, I'm totally loving that part of it. But it's also that part of me, that elbowing and inviting myself and just, do, just standing my ground to do things my way that have made some of the changes that exist. A, 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 a proof that we're making the right direction is when I stopped getting invited to panels about diversity and inclusion. That's how I know. Because we don't need to talk about it. It's part of the culture. You've been listening to Safety Third, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Karima Batts was our guest today. Karima, thank you so much for being on the show. If you want to see pictures from our interviewees, follow us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast. You can leave comments and questions on our website too at safetythirdpodcast.com. Hey, did you like what you heard here? No? Then spread the word, my friend. Good ideas need megaphones. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Additional production help from John Kalish. Music by my brother, Brendan Hotdogwater O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, Safety Third.